Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thanks for your company. By the way, the response to the program has been amazing. Thank you for that. And tell your friends, it's easy to watch. They just go to the website, adh.tv. Tell them the Watch Now button is at the top and it's all there, live, live and on demand. So easy and it's free. Tonight on the program, Bob Catter. There was a feature on Bob Catter a few days ago where he said, and I quote, my ambition in life was to own the clothing stores and open shops in Julia Creek and Mount Isa, become mayor of Cloncurry and play rugby league for North Queensland. I got none of those things. So people who say you can do anything you want are bloody liars. Unquote. He is a character. And later, the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, Nick Cater, will join me in the studio. He rightly argues that under an Albanese government, we'll see a rise in bureaucrats. Mind you, the Liberals haven't been any better. Perhaps there is a reason why the Liberals are sitting on a primary vote of 35%, according to the latest news poll. A piece from last year comes to mind from Professor James Allen, where he wrote, will the Libs ever remember who brung them to the dance? The LNP have been in power for just under a decade. Now, has government ever been so intrusive? Have our freedoms ever been so trampled? As James Allen put it last year, during election campaigns, the Liberal Party elites go back to pretending ever so briefly that they care about the party base. But really, since PM Abbott stopped the boats, can you name a single enduring thing the coalition government has delivered to its base? And he goes on, inroads into freedom, tick. Pretty much the world's highest energy costs and minimum wage, tick. Lousier and lousier, but ever more woke school results, despite throwing ever more money at the problem, tick. Terrible productivity growth or per capita GDP growth, tick. And the list goes on. Mainstream Australians have deserted the party for good reason because they no longer are seen to represent conservative and liberal values. So if the Liberals do lose this Saturday, some serious soul-searching is needed. Have your say. What do you think? Email me, Jones at adh.tv. Look, before we go any further, I'm just wondering whether or not you share my confusion. In 2019, Peter Dutton said that some women on Nauru, quote, have claimed they've been raped and came to Australia to seek an abortion. Peter Dutton suggested they were trying it on in order to secure a medical transfer to Australia. Refugee advocate Shane Bazzi tweeted, quote, Peter Dutton is a rape apologist. Well, Peter Dutton's lawyers understandably argued that the tweet conveyed the defamatory meaning that Peter Dutton excuses rape. In the federal court, Mr Justice White found in Peter Dutton's favour, awarded him damages and interest. Well, the refugee advocate Bazzi appealed in December, arguing the tweet did not convey the defamatory meaning alleged by Dutton's lawyers. And today, the full bench of the federal court overturned the original decision, finding that when Bazzi tweeted, quote, Peter Dutton is a rape apologist, unquote, it did not convey that Mr Dutton excuses rape. So there you are. A bloke tweets... Peter Dutton is a rape apologist, and the full bench of the federal court found that those words do not convey that Mr Dutton excuses rape. How often do we say words have lost their meaning? Didn't Humpty Dumpty say in Alice in Wonderland about words and their meaning, and I quote, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less, unquote. What did the refugee advocate in choosing those words Peter Dutton is a rape apologist. What did he intend those words to mean? Am I the only person confused? Well, yesterday I referred to these teal independents, supposedly representing traditional conservative values, that's the blue part of the teal, and the green representing the environment. And I said yesterday that they were a diversionary outfit, but they are dangerous. As with Stegall in the most recent parliament, they too, if any of them win, will be politically impotent. I mentioned yesterday that they're either dumb or think that we are dumb. Because if they're about climate change, they are about meaningless gestures. Given, as I said, that China emits 25 times more carbon dioxide emissions than we do. 
If these so-called independents from wealthy suburbs think they're going to save the planet, then their idiocy knows no bounds. But you may recall also last week that I spoke to Senator Andrew Bragg, who first raised this issue that the Climate 200 founder, Homes at Court, sits on the board of the Smart Energy Council, which is a charity. And under the laws governing charities, they're forbidden from promoting political parties or candidates. Well, now it appears that sensing danger from Senator Bragg, who has written to the Charities Commissioner, Dr Gary Johns, we have another outfit, Smart Voting Proprietary Limited, who've been paying people in recent days to distribute pamphlets in these teal seats, Goldstein and Kuyong in Melbourne and Wentworth in Sydney. The material from Smart Voting Proprietary Limited urges voters to evict the incumbents, Tim Wilson, Josh Frydenberg, Dave Sharma, Trent Zimmerman. As I said, the Smart Energy Council is a registered charity. And as we said last week, they are not permitted to promote political parties. But in early February, a new company was registered, Smart Voting Proprietary Limited. It just so happens its registration documents were completed by the president of the Smart Energy Council, who's now a director of Smart Voting. The directors of this Smart Voting include Wayne Smith, head of government and stakeholder relations at the Smart Energy Council. The mob caught out backing the so-called Teal Independence. Well, the Smart Voting Company secretary is one Sharon Oliver, the Smart Energy Council's chief financial officer. And Holmes at Court, who's backing these Teal Independents, is also a Smart Energy Council director. As Andrew Bragg has rightly said, I quote, I'm profoundly concerned that Smart Voting Proprietary Limited was established as a shell corporation to circumvent the fact that Smart Energy Council is a registered charity and can't promote or oppose a political party or candidate for public office, unquote. Now, I've used the word duplicitous. Well, here is this Smart Energy Council, a registered charity, whose staff have been caught out appearing at functions for the Teal Independents and supporting them, and now Smart Voting, with a similar sh shape and membership to the Smart Energy Council, is paying for the distribution of pamphlets at pre-polling booths in Goldstein, Kuyong and Wentworth. If this isn't deception and dishonesty, the words have lost their meaning. There's a further report out of Melbourne that employees of a marketing company, Loco Group, campaigning on behalf of the Homes of Court-linked Smart Energy Council in Frydenberg's seat and Tim Wilson's seat of Goldstein, have been instructed to conceal that they're being paid, yet they're out there urging voters to put the Liberals last. Text messages sent to the employees of this company, the Loco Group, have instructed them not to mention who they're working for or that they're getting paid. According to a report in the Australian newspaper, the text message says, quote, hey team, just a little heads up about the smart voting shifts. You may have some political parties trying to come up and ask you questions about who you are and who you're working for. It is important that you don't mention you're working for Loco Group as we as a business do not take a political stand on any issues. You can say you're handing out flyers on behalf of smart voting and that you're there to encourage voters to vote. You do not need to mention that you're paid, unquote. Rank dishonesty. Where's the Electoral Commission? A man and a woman handing out smart voting campaign material in Brighton, out of Melbourne, said they were not aligned with any political party, unquote, and they were, quote, just here to show you how to vote smart, unquote. Rank dishonesty. The pamphlet they were handing out, according to some excellent forensic work done by Rachel, Rachel Baxendale and Alexandra Middleton, the pamphlet featured the picture of a child and Tim Wilson, which urged voters to, quote, put our kids first, put Tim Wilson last, stop the rorts, fix the climate, unquote. The pamphlet is authorised by S. Bloom, Smart Voting Proprietary Limited. But Bloom is the president of the Smart Energy Council, a registered charity and forbidden from promoting political parties or candidates. And this stuff is going on in the critical seats of Goldstein and Kuyong in Victoria. Rank dishonesty. I ask again, where is the Electoral Commission? Now, of course, the Teal Independents are running at 100 miles an hour away from the Smart Energy Council and smart voting. I asked yesterday whether these people were dumb or duplicitous. Well, I think perhaps both. Fair tactics or dishonest tactics? Let me be blunt. 
These tactics employed in the seats of Frydenberg and Wilson are completely dishonest and nothing is being done about it. Bob Catter Sr. is one of the most extraordinary political figures in Australia's political history. Exotically named Robert Bellarmine Carl Catter. Cop that. Born in Cloncurry. His father was also the federal member for Kennedy, the seat Bob Catter Sr. now holds. The paternal grandfather was a Lebanese migrant who owned clothing stores in North Queensland. In fact, growing up in Cloncurry, Bob Catter's family owned a clothing shop and managed a local cinema. He was one of only six at his school who finished year 12. Bob attended the University of Queensland and studied law, but dropped out without graduating, even though he was vice president of the University Law Society. As a sergeant, he served in the CMF, the Citizens Military Forces. He speaks with authority and experience across a range of issues because simply he's been there and done that. He worked in his family businesses. He was a labourer in the Mount Isa mines. His father, who had the seat of Kennedy before his son, had been a member of the ALP until the Labor Party split in 1957. Bob Catter was a member of the Queensland Parliament for 18 years. He was a minister with a stack of portfolios, Northern Development, Aboriginal and Islander Affairs, Community Services, Ethnic Affairs, Mines and Energy. And then he ran for his father, former, father's former seat of Kennedy at the 1993 federal election. His father had been succeeded briefly by Labor's Rob Hulls. On that night in 1993, Bob Catter trailed Hulls for most of the evening. But on the eighth count, a Liberal candidate's preferences flowed overwhelmingly to Bob Catter, which allowed him to defeat Hulls by 4,000 votes. Subsequently, he's been elected and re-elected almost always with large swings to him. In 2001, he found himself out of sympathy with federal, liberal and national parties on economic and social issues. So in 2001, he resigned from the National Party and retained the seat as an independent with a percentage vote after preferences almost always in the high 60s. In the last election in 2019, Bob Catter's two-party preferred result was 63.33% and another swing to him. In 2011, he formed a new political party, Catter's Australian Party, where he said he would unashamedly represent agriculture. Should Bob Catter be re-elected on Saturday, he'll become the father of the Australian House of Representatives in the next parliament following the retirement of Kevin Andrews. That is, he will have been in parliament longer than anybody else. He's got many things to say which are worth hearing, and that's why I've asked him to join me. Bob Catter, thank you for your time. Um, can I just raise this point about your resignation from the coalition? Because you said you're on the record as saying you watched as every one of your rural industries bled to death under deregulation. <coughs> Alan, you're the only commentator in Australia that felt for us and um, deeply, deeply appreciative. Um, no one cared about us. Um, I watched every industry wrecked. Let me be very specific. The cattle numbers are down 20%. From that period, like about 30 years ago, they decided to go on this free market, <clears throat> um, you know. Um, and our cattle numbers down 20%. Our sheep herd is down 72%. Our sugar production is down about 16 or 17%. Our <clears throat> dairy production is down over 17%. We are a net, I cannot believe the same. The Australian Bureau of Statistics says we've been a net importer of fruit and vegetables now for nearly 18 years. Net importer of fruit and vegetables. I mean, we can't feed ourselves yes. in fruit and vegetables. Um, and, um, um, and whole industries have just vanished. Well, then the coal industry. Talk to, me about, uh, talk to us about the coal industry. And you said on that basis alone the government doesn't deserve to be re-elected. You made the point there are only two incomes that this country has, iron ore and coal. Um, to be very specific, it's about 30, $330 billion comes in from real exports. $330 billion, beef and barbara dollars. About $280 billion of that comes from iron ore and coal. They're about 50 50 right? So clearly, uh, over two-thirds of your income comes from two items, you take out one of those items, you close hospitals. You bankrupt this country. So either the ALP, LNP, Government of Australia, 
is fly or they're going to bankrupt the country. My bet is they're lying. <laughs> I'll leave it to you, Alan. Yeah. So, so basically no you're saying... You you're, you're saying they can't make net zero emissions by 2050 because if they do, the country's gone. I've called it a national economic suicide note. I mean, you've got the Labor Party... Yes, where you've, right. yeah, you've said of the Labor Party that the areas you yeah. represented for a long time were destroyed by deregulation of the wool industry, selling off of the railways. <clears throat> um, my homeland, the Midwest, was 10,000 people. Now it's 5,000 people and it's falling like a stone. And the only thing holding in 5,000 is they found a big copper mine in Cloncurry. If not for that, we'd probably be down around 3,000. I think we've lost six rural federal seats. Our population is mm. falling mm. Then but, what about but fuel? The but Alan, I want to say... Fuel. Fuel. I'm I just want to say... Sorry. Before we get on that, every farmer on earth gets 38% of his income from the government. That's the OECD figures. They get 38%. Except if you're in Australia and you only get 5% support from the government. So what are you betting? You're betting that we're 33% better than those Brazilian southern sugarcane farmers? No way. Or the American cattlemen, do you think you're going to beat them? I mean, you might be able to beat them, but you're not going to beat them given the 33% start. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Alan, yeah, Just let's go to fuel, fuel. Bob. Fuel. You've said over and over again that the first need is to secure essential services. At the end of February, from my viewers, let me say, 2021, it's not long ago, national diesel fuel stocks stood at 21 days in this country, petrol at 32. When Chifley talked about introducing petrol restrictions during the war, we had fuel reserves sufficient for three months. Now, at any one time, there are 45 tankers on the high seas bringing crude oil and refined product to our refineries and bowsers. 90 tankers call at Australian ports each month. 60% of our daily liquid fuel consumption comes as imported refined product. And even the 40%, which comes from domestic refineries, comes from crude oil that we have to first get here from the Middle East. So 90% of all liquid fuel, crude and refined, is imported. But, Bob, now we see China's aggression and expansion, which could lead to conflict in the South China Sea. If they were to block the movement of our crude and refined through the Torres Strait, where would we be? <coughs> um, um, almost all of our, our fuel comes from um, Singapore and South Korea. If they embargo fuel, and Churchill effectively embargoed Germany in the First World War, and it touched off the First World War. Um, in the Second World War, we know why Japan went to war. America cut off a, a fuel. No question about it. In the monument to the Second World War, they said they cut off our petrol. We had to go to war. Um, um, and, the, and the European war was about Hitler trying to get to the oil fields, Stalingrad. So, Alan, can I say something? You as a football coach, and, and you know, arguably the greatest football coach in the history of the game in Australia, and I'm talking about rugby and league, but I remember you telling this story about Gary, no, I won't mention his name, but Timmy Brasher. Mm. And, and, and the decision you made, and, you know, I, Robbie Catter, so I've told this story over and over, because you had to make a terrible tough decision. That's it. And you made it. Yes. Senior cabinet minister in the ALP cabinet, successive cabinets, he asked senior because he's back in the Solomon's field. And he said, Bob, the problem is before I can even sit down, they will not make a decision. Politicians today will not make a decision. See, you had to make a decision on Timmy Brasher. And it, as it turned out, it was a brilliant decision. But he could have blown up in your face. You're dropping the Australian fallback and putting a nobody in there. Um, but she did it. But these people have never, ever been in a position no. where they've had to make decisions. Well, then, just um, tell, so no. what about the electricity we, industry? We why, would we be selling, why would we be selling parts of the electricity to China? Um, can I say to you, and this will probably shock your, your viewers, but I asked the uh, Parliamentary Library to do the research. It would seem that China owns over 40% of the Australian electricity industry. Now, that does not 
include a silly glass business on your roof. And uh, remember, every time you put that glass on your roof, as my wife has done, you take a job off an Australian coal miner and you take a job off an Australian power station worker and send those two jobs to China. And if you're happy with that, well, I'm not, I can tell you. And you're on intermittent power. And if you think you're not going to see the lights go off, ask the people in, in, in Germany. And nearly froze to death. Okay. Got out the I agree. What about the building of dams? What about the building of dams? Now, Scott Morrison went to Townsville in March to announce a $5.4 billion investment in the Hell's Gate Dam project. You're saying the proposed dam wall is too low. You say you have a letter from Barnaby Joyce saying the dam wall would be built to 395 metres, a height that would water Townsville, a height needed to get water onto the Western Plains, west of Hewenden. Now, I asked Barnaby Joyce on this program about the letter, he said he can't recall it. Do you have it? Um, whether it was from him or his predecessor, but I'm certain that I've got two letters there from both of them. But there was no doubt that Barnaby Joyce gave an undertaking to 395, as did the Prime Minister, right? Now, um, <clears throat> we've now got a dam that's like a swimming pool on <laughs> there. You know, we went from producing $4 billion a year, that was the proposal for Hellsgate Dam, built to proper height. There have been hundreds of proposals on Hellsgate. Not one of them goes under 380 metres. Not a single person that has come to this. There's report after report over a period of 70 years on Hellsgate. No one ever remotely suggested a low-level dam. Mm. But if it's a low-level dam, Alan, mm. Bradfield is destroyed forever. There's no way you could ever... Well, just let me make Bradfield a point to our, to our viewers. More, what, Bob is talking about, yeah, what Bob is talking about with the 395-metre dam wall, he has said, in his words, that that dam then could provide all of North Queensland's electricity, clean and green, no carbon dioxide emissions, the entire base load would be carried from the Upper Burdigan Irrigation Scheme, which has always been what everyone has agreed to. And you said you attempted to contact the Prime Minister to raise your concerns and you haven't received a return call. Um, no, and he just proceeded to say that uh, they're going with 320 metres high. When I asked the question in the Parliament, Barnaby Joyce said, which is the ALP, Queensland Government's position. So the Queensland ALP runs the federal government because his answer was that, oh, if we're taking this amount of water over here and that amount of water over there, and, and what about the poor, poor barrier reef, you know, and we've got to, well, you know, I mean, you signed up for 2050, Barnaby. I mean, how many principles have you got left? I mean, you sold us out on coal and bankrupted the country, and now you've sold us out on water to the greenies. I mean, is there anyone in there that stands their ground? And it's logical. Our rivers are not rivers. A river flows all the time. We just have a giant flood, Alan, and then nothing. You know, a series of ponds. Mm. Um, so all we're saying, I was... uh, no, the Great Ernie, uh, was... Great Ernie Bridge, and Alan, if you can get that Watering Australia yeah. Foundation back, truly, the, water. the Clarence River diversion. Ernie Bridge. Know, uh, How good was he? Scheme, how good was Ernie Bridge? Um, Listen, Bob, we've uh, run out of time. Uh, said, Sorry. Yeah, no, we've run yeah. out of time. Um, down the track, we'll talk to you about these issues again because when we're sick of saying it, someone might start listening to us, Bob. It's great to talk to you. You've made a phenomenal contribution to politics and to public life. Keep at it. Keep at it. We love your energy. Thank you for sharing some time with us. God bless you, Alan. God there bless is, you. There he is, Bob Catter. He'll be re-elected on Saturday night. But all of those issues, why aren't people like Bob Catter listened to? He knows that area up there like the back of his hand. But he's got bureaucrats in Canberra pretending they know more about it than he does. Bob Catter, the federal member for Kennedy, about to become the father of the House. Look, back briefly to these teal independents because... They're not about beating Liberal candidates, notwithstanding that many of the problems faced by the Liberal Party are of its own making. Nonetheless, many of the dangerous comments that they've made demonstrate they're not essentially about beating Liberal candidates, but about destroying the Liberal Party. 
Now, the woman opposing Josh Frydenberg and Kuyong is an immensely well-credentialed academic. She's a paediatric neurologist. She was director of neurology at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. She completed a neurophysiology fellowship at the Lay Clinic in Boston, Massachusetts, and reportedly has over 150 peer-reviewed publications. So how could a woman, unless for base political motives, how could such a woman of scholarship make such dumb political comments, which ought to disqualify her, yet apparently she's on the cusp of defeating Frydenberg? In the debate last week with the Treasurer, she described border protection policies during the past 10 to 15 years as, quote, a shame to this country, unquote. I keep asking, are these people dumb or duplicitous? When illegal boat arrivals got out of control under Labor, 1,200 lives were lost at sea. The influx of illegal boat people necessitated 17 detention centres and the detention of thousands of children. But according to Monique Ryan, our response to this illegal boat crisis, or the government's response, was a shame to this country. If that's not bad enough, Monique Ryan has no tax policy and has never discussed tax. On China, she said that China, quote, should be treated with respect and sensitivity, not with macho, breast-beating belligerence. We've seen how much that has cost us, and it's been actively unhelpful to weaponise our relationship with China, unquote. I ask again, is this highly intelligent, an academically, academically credentialed woman, politically dumb or politically duplicitous. Treat China with respect and sensitivity, she says. Even though China has militarised the South China Sea, we've seen the recent Solomon Islands deal, the treatment of Hong Kong's democracy and the list of 14 demands by China that Australia must meet to satisfy China's belligerence. But, says Monique Ryan, treat China with respect. But how irrelevant are these non-independent teal candidates who think they can have political legitimacy when they utter not a word on defence policy, industrial relations, education, immigration, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, budget repair, productivity, religious discrimination, yet talk about integrity in government when their own integrity on basic issues is severely wanting. As I said yesterday, these so-called independents are offering themselves in blue-ribbon Liberal seats, trying to destroy the Liberal Party and deliver a Labor government while shouting foghorn-like about climate change. Someone should tell these people, you can't feed your kids or pay your mortgage by shouting climate change every five minutes. But of course, they live in a world of protected privilege. And things like the standard of education, national security, energy prices going up, energy poverty for some, just paying the bills. They're not the concerns of the privileged teal elite. As I said yesterday, if there are candidates out there in Kuyong, Wentworth or Warringah who think, and Zali Stegall, of course, chief amongst them, who think they're going to be able to save the planet, then I say simply, they are idiots. But they shouldn't be able to treat us like idiots. Saturday's a day of reckoning for all of us, including the teal independents, but most importantly, a day of reckoning for voters. Hopefully the voter will prove smarter than these teal pretenders. Well, let's get to our voice from America, as we always do. The very popular Peggy Grandy. There has been an interesting development in American politics where the top Democrat and Republican in the US Senate joined forces in a rare moment on unity last Thursday in an attempt to pass $40 billion in aid for Ukraine but the move was stymied by the Kentucky Republican Libertarian Rand Paul. But he wasn't the only one. In the House of Representatives, Republican Thomas Massey tweeted, and I quote, Counting last night's rushed vote, Congress has now spent more money on Ukraine in six months than we spend on all US roads and bridges in a year. Unquote. Let's bring in Peggy here on what is a very, very controversial issue. Peggy, thank you for your time again. 57 Republicans voted against the $40 billion aid package in the House of Representatives. Massey said Biden is more concerned with spending millions of dollars in Ukraine than he is about baby formula shortages here in the United States. How do the American people react to those comments? Well, thank you, Alan, as always, for having me on. And the American people have an expectation that 
our government can both support our allies and feed our own children. And so while Americans are struggling to put food on their table and gas in their tanks, um, there's a great sense of disappointment and concern coming from the American people that the Amer that our, our leadership and our government doesn't seem to be able to get this right. We can't be spending money that we don't have. And there's a great concern as well. Why are we spending all this money to protect the sovereignty and the borders of Ukraine? And there's no sense of wanting to protect the sovereignty and the borders here at home. And so there's an expectation that we can do both. And Biden and his administration are failing at both. Mm. The Republican Paul Gosa said this regime prioritizes every other country before it thinks about our own. This is the definition of America last. I vote no. Is there widespread support for those views? That's an interesting point that you make. We should be able to look after our friends overseas and look after our own people at home. Biden administration seems unable to do either or both of those. Right. And this was the president. Remember, he when he ran for office, he said he was going to defeat COVID and defeat Putin. And neither has he been successful at. The American people are very disappointed and worried about what is happening. And Senator Paul is right to put up the stop sign and say, we can do this quickly and smartly, not just quickly. We don't need to make this a rush decision. And we need the American people need a little more say in the priorities of this mm. government and how they spend it. That's, it's our money, yeah, not government. Your money. money. I mean, I mean, 57 Republicans who voted against the aid package agree with people like Jim Jordan. So it then went to the Senate, where the Kentucky Republican Rand Paul, who's no dope, is demanding the legislation be altered to require an inspector general to oversee the spending on Ukraine. Rand Paul said, quote, this is the second spending bill for Ukraine in two months, and this bill is three times larger than the first. Congress just wants to keep on spending and spending. So where does this $40 billion aid package for Ukraine, where does the bill stand now? Well, it's already passed the House. It's off to the Senate. And thankfully, Rand Paul has just said what the American people feel as well. Is this money needed? Where is it going to be spent? Do we have any transparency over tracking where it's going? Is it really going to frontline munitions in Ukraine or is it actually going to backfill munitions that have already been spent? So where is this money going? Is it really needed? Can it be traced? And if not, we shouldn't be spending it. We have enough problems here at home that need to be addressed. That's what the American people are primarily focused on. And we would hope that we can also help our allies, but not to the exclusion of helping the American people who are really suffering right now. Absolutely. Peggy, just to something very disturbing, the world must be asking what has led to this dreadful killing rampage last Saturday in Buffalo, New York, where a white 18-year-old has been accused of killing 10 people in a racially motivated attack. He was wearing military gear and live streaming with a helmet camera and is believed to have released a manifesto in which he attributed his radicalisation to Christchurch mosque shooter Brenton Harrison Tarrant. Uh, Peggy, what has been the reaction in America? Well, of course, this is a heartbreaking tragedy, and there's nobody in mainstream thought on the left or the right that supports this at all. And of course, to fit the narrative, they often try to say, well, this is right-wing extreme ideology. There's no one on the right in mainstream thought that supports this either. And we have to remember that it's not guns that kill people, it's people using right. guns who right. kill people. And the strictest laws in the world only restrict the freedoms of law-abiding citizens. Criminals don't follow the laws. And in fact, this gentleman bought a gun legally going through the background check from a licensed dealer, but then illegally modified it and crossed state lines to buy ammunition that was prohibited in New York. And so criminals are always going to find a way around it. I don't know that gun laws um, are mm, the answer to mm. a crime like Just this. Just for the benefit of, of the our tragedy. viewers, this fellow is only 18, killed 10 people and injured three. There were 11 black and two white victims. And then he surrendered to authorities. Reports say America is gripped with racial tensions, gun violence and a spate of hate crimes. Is that how you see it, Peggy? 
Well, it's heartbreaking. And it's not just this white supremacist that he's being accused of being. We saw in California this last weekend in Laguna Beach, a, a shooter walked into a Taiwanese church because he hated Taiwanese people. We see black on black crime every weekend in Chicago and other big cities. And so this is not just exclusively a white supremacy issue, even though the left wants to paint it as such. There's a bigger issue of violence, crime and disorder in big cities all across America. A lot of it due to district attorneys and attorneys general who refuse to prosecute smaller crimes. And so mm. it leads to these mm. bigger crimes. You know, Rudy Giuliani decades ago subscribed the to this broken windows broken theory, windows where if you theory. Fix yep. the graffiti in the broken windows, yep. you're not going to have the bigger crimes. That's, and so uh, that's right. a huge part of what is going on right now. Dead right. If you see a broken window, find out who did it. Because if you don't find out who did it, he'll next be stealing a car, next be robbing a bank. The, yep. This gunman lived yep. 320 kilometres southeast of Buffalo. Has anyone established why he travelled to Buffalo and that particular grocery store? I mean, he arrived at the supermarket in his car. He shot four people outside the store, three fatally. Inside the store, a security guard who was a retired Buffalo police officer fired shots. But a bullet that hit his bullet, the gunman's bulletproof vest, had no effect. The gunman then killed the guard and stalked through the store, shooting other victims. Peggy... There is some talk of him posting a manifesto online outlining his racist, anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic beliefs, including a desire to drive all people not of European descent from America. Where on earth do these ideas come from? Yeah. Well, we see extreme ideology happening all over the world, and it's sad yep. when we see it here at home. You, it, it breaks your heart that there was nobody in this young man's life who saw what was happening, um, whether it was parents or friends or the school actually had problems with him earlier, but he just kind of got passed on through the system and what a tragedy. You know, it's not illegal to have racist views or these anti-Semitic rants. And as terrible as it is, those are not illegal. But when it leads to illegal behavior, it's mm. just tragic and heartbreaking. Yeah. And you just wish that everybody had somebody in their life who yeah. would stop these Absolutely. issues before they you become just made, so large and tragic. You just made a point there, Peggy. Have authorities failed here? Because there are reports this 18-year-old Peyton Gendron had been taken to hospital last year from mental health evaluation after he suggested he'd carry out a murder-suicide as part of his post-graduation plans. He described the threat as a joke. He was released from hospital and then fell off investigators' radar. Something doesn't seem right. Someone's been asleep at the wheel. Yeah, it really is a tragedy and you always wish that these could have been pre prevented and it really comes down to you need somebody involved in his life because if he said it was a joke, you have to believe him. You can't charge him for a crime he hasn't committed yet, no. um, but he certainly needed closer supervision and especially when they found all the things he had written and posted and planned. There was a lot of forethought to this and there was a lot of time to prevent it before Absolutely. it happened. Absolutely. It is a predominantly black community with deep faith. As one survivor said, Jesus often says to turn the other cheek. So that's what I have to do. I have to stay positive, but I'm not OK, not one bit. How on earth yeah. would you be OK? Let me just ask you on this education yeah. issue, which seems to be universal. Peggy, this education disease certainly taking hold in America. For years, Barrington, Rhode Island public schools have been the best in the state. Many parents moved there. They tolerated the higher taxes because of the academic rigour that sets their children up for, amongst other things, receiving academic merit scholarships. But now they've brought in an equity and inclusion agenda, de-levelling universal learning, first implemented in Barrington on the most vulnerable students, those with learning difficulties. Those classes have now been removed under the guise of COVID and the personalised education plan for children with learning difficulties abolished. But Peggy, they then went to the other end of the educational scale. Honours students have been targeted and the school announced the days of honours, English and social studies are gone. Parents are protesting, saying the move deprives their children of a competitive edge. How universal is this nonsense? Well, we know it's not happening in Florida, where Governor DeSantis has That's definitely it. put his foot down on this. But these blue states that keep going further and further left, it's tragic because not only do the students suffer, I believe that America as a whole suffers. This is our future. These are our future innovators, our creators, the people who are going to make a difference in our world and in our country. And they're being deprived of an education that will create and inspire an opportunity for them to learn and grow and think. There is only equality of 
of disservice to the students. Everybody is disadvantaged equally in a system that teaches to the middle and it doesn't address the needs of those who maybe need a little more support or those who need to be advanced in their thinking and challenged. And so it disadvantages the student mm. and it really harms America mm. in the future. And we've got this stuff here too. One longtime Barrington parent said equity in particular is the code word for bringing high achievers down to equalise outcomes. Equity has become an unhealthy obsession and parents are seeing the impact. Peggy, it sounds like that parent should be in charge of education. I note the Barrington High School's ranking has plummeted to 308 this year. Amongst the top high schools in America, it was 189. Peggy, who in government cares? We're betraying our children. I know Ron DeSantis in Florida does. Who in Washington? Well, actually, the Democrats think that the children belong to the government. Biden even said at a teacher conference that the children are not do not belong to the parents when they're in the classroom. Well, the parents strongly disagree. They believe they should be involved in not only what is taught, but what isn't taught. Parents all across this nation want their kids to learn math, science, reading, um, civics. They don't want lowered standards. They don't want this woke ideology. They want their children to be prepared for college or trade school or the military or the workforce. And none of this prepares any child for Good. a bright future and that is successful and Good prosperous. Good on you. Peggy, as always, thank you for your time and thank you for your insights, instructive stuff. Look forward to catching up next week. There she is, very popular, Peggy Grandy in America. Well, look, from where we sit today, and while the housing announcement on Monday grabbed headlines, I'm not sure it can grab votes. After all, for those that matter, there may not be much left in the superannuation pool. Reports say that 3 million Australians withdrew a total of 36 billion from their super during the pandemic. And many under the age of 35 may well have drained their accounts. On top of that, money in superannuation would earn more over time than the capital appreciation of your house. But be that as it may, as things stand today, I, I believe the coalition's at risk or significant risk of losing Bass, Boothby, Chisholm, Goldstein, Longman, Pierce, Reed, Robertson and Swan. And in seats like Brisbane and Ryan, fairly blue ribbon. If the Greens get one more percentage vote and leapfrog Labor, then Brisbane and Ryan could be in trouble. But on that count of nine seats, at least Anthony Albanese may be sworn in as our 31st Prime Minister. He started the campaign unable to tell us what the unemployment rate was or the cash rate. But as Nick Cater has splendidly written and alarmingly, why waste time absorbing the detail when you have review panels to do that for you, argues Nick Cater. An Albanese government will follow the dismal trend of outsourcing decisions to experts, quote unquote experts, Policy making will be done by committees, and when things go wrong, the PM will be able to avoid the blame, claiming he was acting on expert advice. Nick Cater is the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre. He joins me. Nick, thank you for some very insightful comments. Mr Albanese, as you say, will hit the ground reviewing. <laughs> this is worrying on so many fronts, Alan. I mean, first of all, what's he been doing for the last three years? Um, you know, no policies uh, to speak of developed. They're all going to be done... A apparently by reviews. But the, the, the number one problem with this is the public are voting without actually knowing what he's going to come up with. We've got to wait for the review to report on that. And there are 53 of these reviews. 53, plus a job summit, mind you. Yes. Uh, uh, plus a job summit. 18 new public service yeah. officers. Yeah, yeah. Now, then the expense of running these things is bad enough. But, of course, you know, the number one recommendation by every review just about is spend more money. So, I know. And, and we're not getting to vote on this. And, and what about the know. Productivity Commission asked to review the intellectual property rights of Indigenous artists? Yeah. What? It turns out they've already been doing this for quite some time. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, there'll be a review of the Productivity Commission itself. Yeah. <laughs> and decisions on defence <laughs> will be made by a defence force posture review. Posture, yeah. What? I mean, and these will cost billions, and as you said, every inquiry recommends the spending of more money. Yeah. Uh, but, but then you make a very valid point, Nick, that if it's OK to close state borders and confine citizens to their homes, citing expert advice that is seldom put in writing, let alone shared with the public, then I suppose it's OK to run the entire country that way. Yeah, I think this is, this is probably one of the most... Uh, unfortunate legacies of COVID. It's this idea that you put the bureaucrats forward to make the decisions for you. 
and then you as Premier say, well, it's out of my hands. We saw mm. this time and time again. You remember yeah. Anastasia Palaszczuk in a heart-rending case of a 26-year-old woman who couldn't go to see her mother who was sick in hospital. And Palaszczuk said, well, it's not my decision. Yeah. It's in the de it was her decision. You right. know? So I, I think we elect these people mm. to make hard calls. And they don't. And to be responsible. And they don't. You've, and said, they don't. you've said, quote, if it's OK to make street protests illegal or arrest people for their Facebook posts on the advice of public health officials, why bother subjecting anything to parliamentary scrutiny? So, Nick, shut off debate, as we saw during coronavirus, and anyone who disputes the verdict of the experts is not an expert and most probably your words a dangerous nutbag. That's right. Hey. No, if, and if, you, if you dispute an expert, you're by definition not an expert. Yes. And, and so you're not worth listening to. You know, the, 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 the problems with this mount, Alan, because you know the parliamentary process is important. It's, it's not just there for show. It's there to test legislation, to try it, to bring alternative points of view. Now, if you're not doing that, as we did time and time again during COVID, it's not being tested, uh, it, it's not democratic, no. and you're not p picking the flaws in it. No. So you get bad decisions made. And we saw this, didn't we, over and over absolutely, again. Absolutely. And of course, it, made, this but... is standing the Westminster tradition of government and ministerial responsibility on its head. I mm. mean, you make the point. We elect people, don't we, to do the job they're elected to do, to make decisions, wear the consequences, but then voters might decide if this is the way things happen, well... We don't want faceless men and women. We'll pick a few candidates who might give the system a shake. Well, exactly. And I, I think this is one of the factors... This is one of the reasons we're seeing such a high none-of-the-above vote, if you yes. like, you know, for the, for the minor parties and for independents. And it's why the major parties can't get traction on that primary vote, because people are saying, well... You know, if, 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 vote, if they're, they're not actually the ones making the decisions. These are made by people uh, that, that are unaccountable... We yes. get no say in this. No. And, and, and big decisions, Alan. I mean, yes. like, like the, the, the debate over transgender rights, for instance, yes. you know. These, the, we never get to decide this in no. an election. No. And, and in this election, when it's come up, because one of the candidates, Catherine Deves, has been a bit of a champion for this, yes. you know, both major parties would rather not have that discussion. See, Labor, Labor have portrayed Scott Morrison as, as a decision dodger. The advertisements have been powerful, even if dishonest. But... Did Scott Morrison make this bed for himself by convening a national cabinet, rarely blame the premiers for their many, many mistakes, and at the end of the day, what's Scott Morrison got to show for it? Yeah, uh, he treated them like adults, and they repaid him this way. I mean, I, I think it's admirable in one way that, that Morrison has, has refrained from a slanging match at the premiers. You know, I like a civilised form of government, but they haven't paid him the same courtesy, courtesy have they? And I, no. I think time... Time will tell, you know, mm. we, we will come to look back at this and, and make sense of it Quite. and make sense of whether a national cabinet was a good idea. Well, well, just a final point here. I mean, if proper process, and I think you made this point, was sidelined during coronavirus and people given no say and even denied the power to object, yeah. can we then blame Labor for outsourcing its decisions to so-called experts and sidelining the voter? Look... Uh, Labor are very good at this. Labor have sympathy with the bureaucrats because yep. the bureaucrats sympathise with them. Yep. And you've got to say, I mean, there have been examples on both sides uh, of politics during coronavirus, during COVID, but, but it is the Labor states that have really made yep. this into a fine art. You mm. know, Queensland, Victoria, mm. Western Australia. Mm. Uh, we'll and, and that's why I worry about Albo as yep. a Labor 53 Prime Minister. reviews. Mm. 53 reviews. Yeah. Look out. It's coming our way. Good to talk to you, Nick. Thanks, Alan. And thank you for your incisive observations. Nick Cater is the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Institute or Menzies Research Centre, but the central point is... Albo becomes Prime Minister, 53 reviews, Parliament sidelined. Nick Cater, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. Well, look, before we go, I've been telling you for months and months how hopeless Joe Biden is, and the American voter seems to agree. The latest NBC poll, in that latest poll, 75% of re respondents said America was on the wrong track, and Biden's approval rating was an appalling 39%. The geriatric US president is way out of his depth. This is a leader who's hooked on the teleprompter, carefully scripted because his minders aren't sure what he's going to say next. 
Extraordinarily, Biden held his first press conference after 64 days as president. It is the longest a new president has gone without a press conference in more than 100 years. Obama held one after 20 days, Trump after 27 days. Simply, Biden has nothing to say. You look at the disgraceful and bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan, the migrant crisis at the southern border, his absurd US $2 trillion green infrastructure plan, out of control gas prices, and you wonder how America can survive with this bloke. I would suggest they can't. But what about the son, Hunter Biden? Who could forget the laptop Hunter Biden carelessly abandoned at a repair shop in Delaware, which is said to have plenty of incriminating material on it? The laptop is said to have evidence stored on it in relation to Hunter Biden's business dealings, including some which would involve his father, Joe Biden. One of those dealings reported by the New York Post was Hunter Biden introducing the then vice president, his father, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the very same company. When all this came out in the New York Post, the story about Hunter Biden's laptop was subjected to furious censorship by mainstream media. Twitter and Facebook didn't allow the story to see the light of day, and the narrative began that this whole story was a Russian disinformation campaign, and anyone who even raised it was shunned. In a 60 Minutes interview shortly before the 2020 presidential election, Biden said he believed that Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was doing the bidding of Putin by continuing to raise the issue of the laptop. Well, now the tables are turning. As Republicans prepare for a possible return to power amid rising hopes of winning the House and the Senate in the November midterm elections, they're laying the groundwork to make Hunter Biden and his business dealings a tra target of their investigative efforts. Now, last Tuesday, the Delaware computer rep repairman who alerted authorities to the existence of the laptop sued Democratic Representative Adam Schiff, CNN, The Daily Beast and Politico. Mr Mac Isaac claims he suffered financial and reputational damage after these people and outlets accused him of being a Russian asset. He lost his business following the accusations and argued that he had to employ the help of police to stay safe at his shop before eventually fleeing the state altogether. Let's hope Mr Isaac wins and wins big. And hopefully his lawsuit, if successful, is the start of a legal please explain to these other news networks who were willing to withhold information which could have influenced the presidential election. Put simply, the public are sick and tired of media lies. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock on ADH.TV. Good night.